When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome in everyone to the first Take That for Data podcast. This is a special episode. We're going to be doing these every couple of weeks as part of the PHNX Suns podcast. I'm your host, Gerald Borgay. And I am really excited about this pod because of my co-host for this show. I am joined by Stephen Prigione Garner. Stephen, how are you doing today? Gerald, it's a blessing to be here, man. Uh, just kind of thinking about the conversations we had, was it two years, two and a half years ago now? Yeah. And then how things have kind of come full circle since then. So uh, needless to say with that and just with everything else, I'm just blessed to be here and I'm looking forward to making this space of ours more informed in the appropriate manner. Yeah, absolutely. And not to sound like a total hipster, but uh, Steven introduced himself to me a couple of years ago, like he mentioned, and that was when I first got to take a look at his content. So I knew he was going to be good before anybody else knew it. <laughs> and uh, he's one of my favorite people on Sun's Twitter. If you don't follow him, uh, make sure to follow him at, is it stay.true3? It's uh, staytrues.3. Okay, there we go. Follow him on Twitter. He does some of the best video breakdowns around. He really dissects the game very well. And that's why I'm so excited about this podcast because Stephen and I are going to get to dive into a little bit more of the analytical side of things, um, you know, do some audio breakdowns for this pod. So let's just jump right into it with our first topic today, the Suns in the fourth quarter, because this is something that we've been talking about, it feels like all season. And it's kind of crazy that the Suns, as of right now, are basically the worst fourth quarter team since tracking data has been available for <laughs> NBA teams in any quarter. Uh, Steven, I'm just going to kick it to you and, and we can dive into a couple of the different problems that we're seeing. But what jumps out to you about the Suns and their fourth quarter problems this season? So I think the thing that is standing out most to me is kind of what was going to stand out in looking at the season from an outlook perspective before the season started. And that was the the continuity disadvantage and all of the, the figuring out in terms of solving the puzzle with this team that Frank Vogel and company, as well as the roster will have to do on the fly. Mm-hmm. And I think in fourth quarters, it's a microcosm of the playoffs where you have to stick to your guns and, problem solving, but also having something that you know you can always go to when certain situations present themselves. And they haven't quite figured out that part of their process in the fourth quarters. And that's why we're seeing such a high variance in results. In addition to just the general level of execution that's just not consistent enough to be the team that 
both the league and they themselves expect to be in those waning moments of games. Uh, what yeah. about you? What's standing out to you uh, from a broader perspective? Yeah, I think there's a couple of uh, misnomers or misperceptions about where the Suns really struggle in the fourth. Because we keep seeing on Twitter people saying the Suns don't run offense. They don't have an offense. Um, (laughs) And and, well, I do think the ball stops to a certain degree compared to the other three quarters. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's fair. I think there's this misperception that they just don't run any plays and it's just ISO straight up every time down. And while I think sometimes it devolves into an ISO set, I think part of that is because the bigger problem is when the Suns' first action isn't there, sometimes it feels like they take too long to get into their second action or they don't at all. And then I think sometimes the plays that they're running are designed to create a mismatch and to let one of their three you know, top 15, top 20 scorers in the league go to work against said mismatch. Are, are, what are you seeing on that front? Because... I feel like we keep hearing this common complaint about Kevin Young and the offense and how the Suns don't run anything in the fourth. Is that a fair assessment in your book? No, it's it's not a fair assessment. And I've explained it a handful of times on Twitter this season, and I'll politely continue to do so just until uh, the film starts to match it um, Mm -hmm. over time and people will be able to kind of start to make it make sense for themselves. And I think the misnomer that you keep hinting at a lot of it just comes to the types of defenses that Devin Booker, Bradley Bill, and Kevin Durant are seeing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to run an offense when you are having, if it's not completely two to the ball, in terms of if it's Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, or Bradley Bill with the ball on the perimeter, or if it's Kevin Durant on the elbow or on the block, if you're seeing an extra defender running at you, putting a double team on you, the whole objective of offense and any set of action that you run is to get is to gain an advantage. Mm-hmm. And those three players are walking advantages in and of themselves. And where Frank Vogel and Kevin Young decide to put their chess pieces on the board in the half court really dictates to the defense in terms of what type of action they're going to be able to run. So you could say you want to come down court and you want to run your elbow action and flow into a handoff from there, but the handoff action is going to get flattened out because Devin Booker is going to see that big at the level of the screen. And mm-hmm. if you have that big at the level of the screen, whether that's Nurkish, whether that's Eubanks, whether it's small ball with uh, Chemezi Metsu or whoever else, whoever else might be on the floor, that's the advantage. And now you're getting into that player, either either one of the perimeter players or the roller, and now you're playing a four on three behind all of that action. And ultimately, any action you run, you're going to want to get an advantage to that extent. So it's hard to run actions and sets when you're consistently seeing that type of defense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I love the way that you put that in terms of all three of those guys are walking advantages. And so why wouldn't you, you know, get them the ball in advantageous spots against advantageous matchups and let them go to work? That's the whole point of having these guys. And I think to a certain degree, working through these drastic growing pains now, when you're seeing, you know, different defensive schemes and junk defenses every night in the fourth I think that's really going to help you in a playoff scenario where you're going to be seeing that for a whole game. You're going to be seeing, you know, fourth quarter caliber defense for a whole game Um, and being able to capitalize and just get the ball to a guy in an advantageous spot and let him go to work is kind of the name of the game sometimes in playoff basketball, especially down the stretch. So I I do think, you know, I, I hate to keep harping on they need more reps together and, you know, give them time to get healthy because fans just don't have the patience for that sort of thing. But at the same time, they've only had the big three together, have only played 83 fourth quarter minutes so far 
over 15 games and they're 10 and five in those games. So as much as the numbers dictate that this is a really, really historically bad fourth quarter team, I don't think it's entirely fair to say that it's going to be that way the whole time. For me, it, it feels kind of like a little bit of a mental hurdle. Do you, do you get that sense? Cause I feel like a couple, a handful of games, especially recently, They've generated good looks, but they just haven't fallen, and I think that bleeds over into the defense. Do you feel like at this point it's kind of more a mental thing than anything execution-wise? I do think it's mental, and I'm almost positive that they're having these conversations in the film room and at practice in terms of how they're going about executing their process in fourth quarters. And I think after the game against Indiana last Friday, Kevin Durant mentioned uh, mentioned to me that he feels like in certain moments in fourth quarters, they just lose their grip on um, stamping their identity on a fourth quarter more than an opposing team is. So, for example, you can take that that game against Indiana in Indiana from last Friday as an example. The Pacers went small ball. The Suns also obviously went small ball as well. But the issue is that it was played at a tempo and pace that is highly favorable to the Indiana Pacers in a more free-flowing game than it was more so in a half court, which is obviously, especially compared to the Indiana Pacers, a lot more advantageous for the Suns in that specific matchup. And you can you take that as a microcosm and apply it to a few different scenarios we've seen over the course of the season. We can even go back to a game, and I think it was early December against the Lakers in the in-season tournament uh, games leading up to the actual tournament where I think Devin Booker was out for that game and it was Bradley Bill and Kevin Durant playing. And the fourth quarter, the Suns had a a double-digit lead, but the game in the fourth quarter was played on the terms of the Los Angeles Lakers, offensively and defensively. And we saw that lead that the Suns had completely vanish and then get multiplied by the Lakers, just just being better continuity-wise and process-wise with stamping their identity on the game. Um, And there's just been a lot of examples of that kind of happening over the course of this stretch. And like you said, the big three have not played that much time, specifically in fourth quarters together. And it's just kind of part of their process and stamping their identity on things to just kind of, you know, just get those reps together and figure out, okay, if this this situation occurs, here's how we can attack it. If that situation occurs, this is how we attack it. And figuring it out tactically from there. Yeah, it, it feels like they're getting their – you know, they're getting the book thrown at them in yep. multiple respects. And and the way that you mentioned those examples, like it's hard to stamp an identity when what you are seeing on a night to night basis is forcing you to adjust because other teams are going to have to be the aggressor against the sun's offense just to throw them off. Because when you have three scorers of that capability, and then you surround them with a smart connector like Yusuf Nurkic and, you know, a, guy who's shooting damn near 50% from three in Grayson and Allen. Like mm-hmm. you have to make them get outside their comfort zone, however you can. Um, and, and I do think like just speaking to the mental hurdle thing, if you look at the numbers, the Suns rank 30th in scoring 29th in field goal percentage, 29th and three point percentage, 30th in free throw attempts, 30th in rebounds, 29th in assists, 29th in turnovers, 29th in steals, 30th in point differential, 30th in offensive rating, 27th in defensive rating and 30th in net rating in the fourth quarter. Like it's one thing if you struggle on defense in the fourth, or if you struggle with turnovers in the fourth, but the Suns statistically rank at the bottom in like damn near every category. So it does feel like things snowball when they miss a few shots. And, and I want to talk to you about the start 
of the snowballing because we've seen last game Frank Vogel adjust his lineup to where Devin Booker was on the floor to start the fourth quarter. And I'm curious your thoughts on this because if you look at the lineup data and if you look at the way they've started fourth quarters, a lot of it, for whatever reason, starts with those first few minutes in the fourth when Devin Booker gets his normal rest. He plays the entire third, then he gets a rest. And those lineups that have Durant and Beal, for whatever reason, have not been able to find a rhythm. Those lineups have been outscored by 50 points in 60 minutes together this season in the fourth quarter. That's insane to me. Um, What have you seen at the start of fourth quarters that kind of gets this ball rolling in motion to where it's like, oh, no, here we go again in the fourth? Yeah, for sure. I think some of it comes with, the gravity, and this is not gravity that comes from opponents, but the gravity in terms of conceding and watching when Kevin Durant has the ball in his hands because he's an all-time great, you kind of revert back to just watching him handle the ball in whatever context of offense you're running and just expecting him to put his cape on. And that's just not, like, it's realistic at moments because he is who he is, was a prolific, the most efficient scorer in, in history of basketball, but to expect them to do that for 12 minutes a game in the fourth quarter over the course of an 82-game season, including the playoffs, even if it is only for that early stretch where it's like four to six to eight minutes where Devin Booker is getting his rest before he comes back in in the end of the fourth, mm-hmm. it's, not, it's just not fair. And that's not why this team is built the way it's built. It's supposed to be where they're keeping offensive pressure on opponents for 48 minutes, regardless of what the lineup combinations are who's on the floor in terms of the big three in tandem with others, or if it's only one on the floor at a time, they're supposed to be dictating offensively. And the offense is naturally going to be well ahead of the defense, but the process just haven't, it just hasn't been consistent enough. And I think a lot of the things that we're seeing, and it kind of goes to, like you mentioned with defenses dictating towards the Suns in terms of trying to get the ball out of Durant's hands. Mm -hmm. It's the catch and hold scenarios that really stand out on the film to me. And I think one of the main culprits who's also a piece that's consistently featured in the lineups that we're talking about is Eric Gordon. And this is not like an indictment against Eric, but it's a snag in their process that they consistently see where if it's, let's say Kevin Durant gets double teamed in a pick and roll or out of the post and it's swinging around, there's sometimes moments where they get it directly to the backside on the swing swing and there's flow and tempo to it. And that ball movement is faster than the rotations of the defense. That's an advantage. And they either get a shot or somebody's able to attack a closeout, play and paint to Gary from there, and then they get high shot quality. There's also moments where it seems like more often than the latter or than the former in this scenario, where somebody like Eric Gordon might have the ball, and instead of swinging it or directly attacking the defense as it's rotating, it's just catch and hold. And there's already been seven to 10 seconds blown off the shot clock in this scenario already. So now you're talking about, you only have so much time to make a decision and either pass it, dribble, or shoot. And those scenarios, I feel like, are just happening too often. And that allows for defenses to keep themselves set, ultimately keeping the Suns off the offensive boards, which is something that's been an advantage for them this season. And that also pins them behind schedules trying to get back on defense, which obviously we know has been an issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, to your point, like they haven't been the best this season about attacking those doubles because Kevin Durant is good at drawing them. He knows how to pass out of them quickly, especially when he's, you know, in the post or on that block, he can see it coming. He knows what rotation to make there. It doesn't always feel like they get that swing swing down perfectly. 
Um, and obviously they're getting blitzed in a lot of different ways. It's not just Durant in the post, but it does sometimes feel like when Durant has it going or in those lineups where it's Durant and Beal on the floor, they defer a little bit too much um, in terms of just kind of standing around and expecting Kevin Durant to be Kevin Durant. Yep. Uh, and, and I think we saw that over this stretch. We're going to talk about Booker in a little bit, but I think we saw this over this kind of incredible run that Devin Booker was on over the last two weeks where it was a similar thing where the ball movement kind of stopped. It was like, all right, let book cook. Cause he's in the zone right now. And mm-hmm. again, I think that's where building these reps is going to be important for this team. Cause it does, you know, these guys are unbelievable players, unbelievable basketball IQs, but it still takes in-game reps and seeing different coverages and being able to kind of conquer those things with experience to build that familiarity as a team um, and and I want to like the the Beal and Durant with no Booker, like I said, they've been outscored by 50 points in 60 minutes. Lineups with Booker and Durant, but no Beal are a minus 33 in 109 minutes. Lineups with Booker and Beal, but no Durant are a minus three in about 32 minutes. And then the lineups with all three are actually a plus five in 83 minutes. So it, mm-hmm. it's kind of funny. You take one of them out of the equation, you're still losing that battle so far. But when you, once you get to all three back in the game, they're actually a plus. It's, it's only a plus five, Stephen, but that's so much better than the astronomical minus that they've been in fourth quarters overall. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think some of it can be attributed to how they're going about executing with the, the different combinations of the big three on the floor with one off. And I also think it's them – them being Frank Vogel and company figuring out the margins around those two or around those three when they're on the floor in the fourth quarters and figuring out what lineup combinations Mm -hmm. and what groupings and pairings around those two or those three that are on the floor at any given time can be most effective, not just offensively, but defensively. And you were talking about the fourth quarter stats um, and just kind of speaking to where they've been at. Um, In his window, specifically since Christmas, since that Christmas Day game, Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been they've been only grabbing forty five percent of the rebounds in the fourth quarter stretches, mm-hmm. and that makes that makes everything tough because that's all inclusive offensively and defensively. Only grabbing forty five percent of the available caroms off the basket that are missed shots. That just can't happen, and I think some of that comes with them not having Nurkic on the floor, and obviously being lacking a little bit more size and that ability to to react quicker to a rebound than opponents are. And I think they get a lot of the initial stops defensively. The issue is when you're not getting that initial stop and then you're playing more into the shot clock with that extra 14 seconds than an opponent might be getting or what have you, that's just it's, – it's more taxing on you when you're playing defense instead of playing defense for 18 seconds or 20 seconds. You're playing defense for 30, 35, 40 seconds. That's, that's tough. And then we saw we've seen a lot of scenarios where opponents have got multiple offensive rebounds in one possession. And you know, that just makes life tough when you're trying to either sustain the lead or work your way back into something. So I think them figuring out lineup combinations, and we'll be talking about trades a little bit later as well. I think figuring out those pieces to put around them in the fourth quarters to optimize those marginal, those marginal areas of the game that you have to win is also going to help with the process as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that gets lost in the conversation about the Suns bench and, um, you know, the amount of reps that these guys have had together. We we always tend to focus on the big three or the starting five. But 
in truth, like those lineups at the start of fourth quarters or second quarters, when you take book out, you have some bench heavy lineups out there. Those are the ones that are going to determine whether you can sink or float in the playoffs. Um, and, and there's been a lot of inconsistency as Vogel has had to adjust his lineup so much with all the different injuries, like, and figure out what he has with a group of all new guys, pretty much like, you know, we saw Yuta early in the season, then it was KBD, then it was Nas for a little bit. You know, we've seen Drew Eubanks struggle at times and so much so that they went to Yudoka as a bookie off the bench. Now back to Eubanks. Like, I feel like putting the right pieces around those guys is is definitely going to take some time as well. But I wanted to ask you one last question before we move on to our next topic, because those lineups those Beal Durant lineups, you and I are both of the opinion. The Suns do not need a starting caliber point guard. They have more than enough offensive creation to be Mm -hmm. just fine on that front. Do you think they would benefit from having more of a backup floor general type to come in at the start of those second and fourth quarters, maybe put Durant and Beal in, you know, more advantageous spots. So there's a little bit more of a flow in those lineups, or do you think it's something that, with time and the right guys around them, they'll be able to figure out. I think they would benefit from having a reserve type of guard that can be a lead guard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think that part gets lost in the conversation because what people are saying, like the talking heads, they're saying that the Suns need a starting point guard, like a starting true person that's going to be moving one of like probably most likely, obviously Grayson Allen to the bench to mm-hmm. have a starting point guard like a Chris Paul in that top five. And that's just not what this team needs. Uh, I think we have enough playoff data uh, from last season, especially that supports that claim. And I think it, I think it would be uh, the Suns would be remiss if they went about it any other way than they are right now. Um, So I do think they could use a floor general coming off the bench, but it doesn't have to be somebody that's always bringing a ball up the floor. I would much rather it be somebody that can initiate, but doesn't have to initiate. And and not taking a ball out of obviously the best player on the floor or the second best player on the floor, taking it out of their hands. Um, But I also do think that defensively, though, the Suns, and we don't have to go into it too much, but the other half of the identity being stamped is figuring out what type of activity can you um, can you compile over a 12 minute period where you're you've been showing the team this and that coverage over the first 36 um, and then in this final 12, are you able to dictate things more by ramping up activity? And I think that's where the effectiveness of the small ball lineups, but also having Kevin Durant um, putting him on opposing uh, opposing center or whoever the main screener is for an off for an offense and being able to flatten out actions and play with activity around that. I think figuring out those dynamics within their process is important as well. And it's equally as important, in my opinion, as them figuring out the flow stuff offensively because I don't think the flow is going to be as much of an issue if they're not taking a ball out the basket and then getting into their offense every time. If they're able to play with a little bit more pace and matchups aren't set from opponents and they're able to flow in the handoffs and pick and rolls and any anything else they want to get into, the whole playbook is open at that point. So blending in more stops into their process would definitely help and finding ways to have more activity like we saw with Durant on um, like Derek Lively and um, – all different types of centers that they might be going against helps with that a ton. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, we alluded a little bit to the Booker part of this equation. Let's talk about him for a minute because Book has had 
himself quite a couple of weeks here. He won player of the week, I think last week. He won player of the month for January this week. And then he was named to his fourth all-star game uh, last night, which is great for Book because, you know, first of all, he joins a list of eight players to ever earn four or more all-star selections while playing with the Phoenix Suns. And all of the guys that are on that list are pretty much legends in the Suns franchise. You got Steve Nash and Walter Davis with six, Amari with five, Sean Marion, Charles Barkley, Paul Westfall, and Connie Hawkins with four. Book now joins that group. And it's nice for Book because two of his four all-star bids have been as an injury replacement, which, you know, we don't have enough time to talk about that. But uh, it's crazy. I, I... it's hilarious to see how the Suns fan base has perceived Devin Booker's season and the need for a point guard and point book and all this other stuff. And then you look at the numbers, he's averaging a career high in scoring second on the team, six in the NBA in scoring, averaging a career high in assists leads the team 12th in the NBA career high in field goal percentage at 50% career high in three point percentage, just under 39 career high, true shooting percentage at just under 62 and that's all while navigating dual roles on a team with title expectations. Uh, Steven, what have you made of book season so far? Well, I'm going to look at it from a dip, a little bit different of a perspective. So if you take everything that you just mentioned in the latter end of your statements and everything that you were assessing of Devin Booker and you detached his name and you just put that name out into the ether with no name attached to it and you just asked everybody on Twitter, would you like for a player – that's leading your franchise, the franchise face, the best player, all of that stuff. Would you like for this player that you are putting on this pedestal for your team to carry them to the promised land to be averaging these raw numbers, but also on this efficiency and thinking about everything that comes with operating as a primary option. If you took his name, detached it from it and you just put it into like a vacuum like that, the, the response from that would be so different (laughs) Yeah, it would. It's so different because this dude is, it's not, it's not human what he's doing right now. And that's, yeah. What, what can't you say about Devin Booker at this point? I mean, he's, he's, he's a special basketball player. And he's, like you said, he's toggling roles. He's playing a proverbial new position to most people, even though he's obviously done it a few times over the course of his career, especially Mm -hmm. in the playoffs last season when Chris Paul went down. Which is uh, which which the Suns won two games back to back at home. I don't know if people kind of forgot about that <laughs> in that series yeah. against the Nuggets. And Devin Booker was the main culprit of why they couldn't figure out the Suns in that stretch. But that's neither here nor there. Um, Devin Booker is, he he's been here in terms of arriving, but the way the manners in which he's going about manipulating the uh, manipulating the defense based off of the looks that they're giving him, it's it's special. And to be able to do that as a player who's primary method of attack is scoring first, scoring second, and scoring third, and allowing for the attention that he garners from his scoring to set the table for him to then play make off of and put others in advantageous positioning. All of that is being a point guard. You're taking what your advantage is, whether it's you getting downhill like somebody like John Morant, you being somebody like Steph Curry that's moving off the ball and then playmaking off of the attention that you're garnering. That's literally the essence of being a point guard. It might not look how people traditionally like it to look. It might not be him coming up the court and dribbling a ball for 25 or 20 seconds <laughs> and then finding somebody and pick and roll. It's, it doesn't have to look like that every time. But is he setting the table for everybody. And the, I think the percentages that everybody is shooting off of passes coming from him 
in addition to him scoring for himself, are all efficient. And that speaks to him being a non-heliocentric type of floor general for his team. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I feel like there's, again, another misperception in the NBA that to be a true point guard, it has to look like, you know, John Stockton and Steve Nash setting up Amari and Carl Malone in the pick and roll or Chris Paul, you know, uh-huh. doing what he did since we just saw that here for a couple of years in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And it, or even, you know, a more modern example like James Harden and Luca, the way that they are heliocentric offensive hubs that dominate mm-hmm. the rock. Um, although Harden has done a little bit better job of that with the Clippers lately. But mm-hmm. like, that's not what it looks like in the modern NBA. And, and I think there's this, it's tied into the misperception that the Suns don't run offense in fourth quarters. And that that's because they don't have a point guard, which is ridiculous mm-hmm. to me. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the best that we've ever seen from Devin Booker. And like you mentioned, he has operated in a point guard facility before, Mm -hmm. but not like this on a winning team with two, you know, guys who have averaged 30 points per game in their career before over a season. Like that's Mm -hmm. a whole different animal and the way that he's doing it. I like the word that you use there toggle because it, it does feel like it hasn't been seamless at times but it feels like when he uses his aggressiveness as a scorer and being in attack mode, it opens up a lot of the playmaking as well. Um, and I do, there's, there's this idea that book was shooting too much over the stretch because they lost those two games to the Pacers and the magic when he went off. Uh, first of all, no second, of all, like the ball could have moved a little bit more. It did feel like, like I said earlier, it, it feels like sometimes the sun's role players, defer or just stand around a little bit too much when you know a guy like book or a guy like kd really gets it going um Mm -hmm. but it's crazy to me that people looked at book scoring numbers looked at the final result of an l and chalked it up to book shooting too much when in reality it was turnovers it was the fact that their opponent shot like nearly 20 more shots than them it was all of these other problems Mm -hmm. that were glaringly obvious um and I wanted to point this out. Field goal attempts this season, Devin Booker leading the team with 19.8, Kevin Durant just behind him with 19, Bradley Beal just under 14. And since December 27th, when they've been on this, what, this tear where they're like 14 and five or something like that, yep. Devin Booker 20.2, Kevin Durant 17.3, Bradley Beal 14.7. And the touches per game over these last 15 games have been all three of them around 66 to 69 touches per game. So it's not just about the shot attempts. It's about the fact that all three of these guys are getting their touches. It's where they're getting them and how they're able to maximize those and put those to good use. That's more worth noting in my opinion. Correct. I I couldn't agree more. And uh, just kind of looking at, looking at the, the intricacies of what's going on with Devin Booker and how it's affecting the team. I think maybe one of my favorite parts of this stretch is the fact that we've spoken to, and this could also obviously be attributed to the last segment when we were speaking to their fourth quarter struggles, and it's the shot profile for the team. Um, I think my eyes have been gravitating more to the three-point attempts, and I've tweeted about the record when they get north of the 31 attempts per game. Um, When they hit that mark and hit more than that, excuse me, um, then their average, they 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 have a like a top three or top four winning percentage that which is what it will equate to when they do so. And I think a lot of those three point attempts, they're kind of the big three are kind of leaning on Grayson Allen, Eric Gordon, uh, insert 
son's ancillary player here to get those attempts up off of the gravity that those three have. But I think mm-hmm. they're starting to understand a little bit more, and it's a lot more slow in process than Frank Vogel and company would like for it to be. Mm-hmm. But they're starting to figure out that they can chip in more and find ways to get up more three-point attempts because it's obviously what this team needs. You already alluded to them being um, outshot from deep and how that math, it just makes it hard for even as great a three players as those three are with shooting and scoring. You have to be able to play the math game as well in this damn age of the NBA. And figuring out for Devin Booker specifically that he's shooting 7.4 attempts over the last eight games from deep and knocking those down at 43%, I think is exactly where this team has to be. And I think him kind of spearheading them beginning to be better with their shot profile within their offensive process is kind of a byproduct of that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the shot profile because the three-point attempts, their record when they get up at least 33s versus when they don't is – pretty glaring it's it's you know you can never sum up a basketball team's success or failures based on one stat but that one is a pretty uh pretty pointed one there um Mm -hmm. but let's go ahead and talk about some trade targets for the suns because we've we've alluded to a couple of areas where they could use some help i think for most people the three that come to mind are having a two-way wing of some sort a a more of a defensive-minded presence because that starting lineup it's really powerful offensively and and defensively it actually hasn't been bad Um, Mm -hmm. but it can feel a little undersized depending on the matchup there Um, the other one a backup point guard I think would be beneficial for those minutes when book is not on the floor and then a third big someone that you can trust that's a different kind of look than a Yusuf Nurkic or Drew Eubanks um, you know, just in case Eubanks is not reliable in the playoffs, just in case you need a more athletic shot blocking rim protecting type of big, uh, mm-hmm. I think those are kind of the three needs that come to mind the most, but I wanted to talk, let's talk about Bruce Brown. Cause he's one trade target that we agreed to talk about for today's show. Um, looking at the numbers here, he's putting up about 12 points, five rebounds, just under three assists shooting 48% overall, 33% from three. Uh, he makes $22 million this year with a $23 million team option for next year. So to meet that criteria, to be able to financially pull off this trade, it would probably have to include either Grayson Allen or Yusuf Nurkic, and it's not going to be Nurk because, A, like you're not going to get a starting caliber center back in return because Bruce Brown cannot be aggregated in any trade as a recently traded player. And B, they're just not going to trade Yusuf Nurkic. Like, you're not going to get a starting caliber center replacement on the trade market with such limited means. Um, mm-hmm. So it would probably be Grayson Allen, Nas, and then you would have to stack three minimum contracts on top of that. Uh, in this case, like Yuta, Bulbul, Chemezi, maybe some second-round picks in order to trade for Bruce Brown. So that's that's quite a lot to give up for one guy. Mm-hmm. But let, let's talk a little bit about what he would look like on the Suns, what what does he bring to this team that they're lacking in your mind? So I think Bruce Brown is one of the most multifaceted role players that can perform on a playoff stage specifically and exclusively mm-hmm. that can help raise the floor for your team. But the impact, if he's insulated appropriately, can also help to raise the roof of a team. And I think the Suns, as, as you and me, people that cover the team as well as fans, and observers of basketball, in addition to all of that, had a front seat to just that in their playoffs, in his playoff stretch with the Denver Nuggets last season. Mm-hmm. The way he came in and 
help to fortify and even take the second units of the Denver Nuggets to another level while also unlocking an abundance of defensive versatility and offensive versatility in the nine Jokic minutes, but also in addition to Jokic Mm -hmm. and being able to be uh, put into lineups, especially in the clutch and be one of their best players in terms of plus minus and effectiveness in the clutch for that entire playoff run last season. I think that was a front seat for everybody to see the impacts that Bruce Brown could potentially have. He's the type of player that the Suns had a chance to at least have negotiations with going into last season. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the players that I was looking at in the um, in the free agency last season, that's somebody that I was looking, hoping the Suns would kind of take a chance on because um, his end the end of his tenure with the Brooklyn Nets kind of had some uh, ambiguity to it in terms of what type of player he is. Is he a guard? Is he a forward? Is he like a backup center type guy? And I think last season he really showed that he's a player that you just can't put in a box. And when you don't put him in a box and allow for him to toggle these multiple roles offensively and defensively over the course of however many minutes he's getting for your team, he can be a, a, a highly advantageous plus and really help to be a complementary piece to everything that you already have in terms of your main pieces. And I think he's a player that the Suns could extremely benefit from having you talk about uh, potentially having somebody that could assume a lead guard role and initiate an offense in reserve units or units where it's Devin Booker off and it's Bradley Bill and Kevin Durant on the floor. Bruce mm-hmm. Brown can do that, and he's done that with Kevin Durant before with their tenure with the Brooklyn Nets. We saw him do that last season with the with the Denver Nuggets. Um, you talk about the Suns needing a point of attack defender. Bruce Brown's done that in his tenure with the with the Denver Nuggets, as well as at times with the Brooklyn Nets. But he also did it even more so more recently in his tenure with the Indiana Pacers, doing a lot of the point of point of attack things and helping to set a tone with the activity and just making life tough on lead guards at the initiation of an offensive possession. Uh, we talk about having a piece that I mentioned where the Suns can dictate with defensively and unlock small ball lineups. He's shown that he could do that in abundance in his time with the Brooklyn Nets. And he showed it as well with the Indiana Pacers a little bit when um, when my Miles Turner was off the floor. And being able to switch on the bigs or guard bigs initially, like I talked about the Suns using Kevin Durant, flattening out actions and playing with activity from there. He checks off all of these boxes, and he does so in a manner that's not demanding of the ball or demanding of attention. So he's just complimentary as a piece. And I think Bruce Brown would really bring a lot of things um, to this team that they don't have in terms of the level of grit and activity. Kind of think of Josh Koji with a more reliable and more consistent jump shot that garners a little bit more attention from a defense. That's kind of the type of player that Bruce Brown is. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you brought up the Akogi thing because I was just going to say it. It feels like he's kind of a, I hate the, ter- the term Swiss Army knife gets used a little bit too much, but he really kind of is with his yeah. versatility. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's a six-five wing who's who's you know based on lineup data has spent most of his time at the three. But you mentioned the the versatility, the ability to log different positions. Um, you know, I remember the Nets using him as a screener quite a bit and yep. having some success with that. So he's he's capable of doing a lot of the little things that Josh Okogie doesn't give credit for, but without being as much of a liability in terms of the weaknesses like the three-point shooting, um, you know that sort of thing. He. He's also a very he drives a lot. Like he's yeah. I think he's 77th percentile in drives per 75 possessions. He mm-hmm. passes out of those drives quite a bit, but when you're looking at this particular offense, that's a good thing. And he also he doesn't get to the rim very often, but when he does, he finishes very effectively. He can finish through contact there. 
He's a good and active cutter. I think he's a 74th percentile in cuts per game. The big thing is, you know, people are going to look at the three-point shooting. And to be fair, he's only shooting 33%. He's only shooting 31.5% on catch and shoot threes and 37.5% on corner threes. You'd like those numbers to be a little bit higher, but he only ranks in the 23rd percentile in openness rating right now this season. That number, I'd imagine, would skyrocket with a team like the Suns that has three other guys you got to worry about before you even consider, you know, leaving Bruce Brown open for three. So he's an interesting one. I, I struggle with Bruce Brown because of what you'd have to give up just to match salaries. Like mm-hmm. you could do Grayson Nas and like Eric Gordon's three millions to not send so many guys. Like you would have to send five if you're not sending Eric Gordon. But that's a lot to give up for Brown. And also, like, you can't include Josh Okogie or Damian Lee, who have slightly higher contracts on the vet minimum because mm-hmm. they have veto rights. So it, it kind of it, it hamstrings you in a way in terms of, you know, giving up five rotation or not even rotation guys, but just five players for one. Yeah. And I think the Raptors, like, they're looking for a first-round pick or two, which the Suns mm-hmm. don't have that to offer. Grayson Allen is probably, in my eyes, worth a first-round pick of mm-hmm. himself um but let's let's talk about our second target as well um royce o'neill and based on what i'm hearing like obviously the miles bridges stuff has been very uh up front and center recently based on mm-hmm. what we're hearing over here at phnx he's kind of the viable alternative to miles bridges in a way um you know he's only averaging seven points four and a half rebounds two and 2.9 assists He's shooting 38% overall, but most of his attempts are coming from three where he's shooting 36%. He makes $9.5 million this year. He'll be an unrestricted free agent in the summer, and I think if the Suns traded for him, they would get his bird rights. So a trade, you're probably looking at Nas Little, Yuta Watanabe, Bol Bol, and a couple of second-round picks, which is what, you know, based on what we've heard, the report is the Nets want, you know, they'll settle for multiple second-round picks for Royce O'Neal. So, Stephen, what would your thoughts be on adding a guy like Royce and where he could help Phoenix out? I think Royce is the type of player that would greatly benefit in a lot of ways, similar to how we spoke to Bruce Brown benefiting from being with the Suns in terms of the shot quality that he would see on the volume of attempts that he takes from deep and also his ability to be able to flip those catches and also be able to attack closeouts and play advantage basketball from there. Also being a player that can see success guarding up in terms of being able to not just guard guards, but also guard forwards and even some of the bigger forwards and do so effectively in terms of containing the ball and being able to toggle multiple defensive roles, whether that's as a chaser, whether that's at the point of, at the point of attack or as like a wing stopper guarding somebody like Kawhi Leonard who doesn't come off the most screens, but also plays off of the catch in a stagnant way a little bit more. You can trust him if you want to put him on a matchup like that, or if you're in a situation where you're going against the Clippers and you have to switch on the perimeter just to flatten him out, you can find yourself being okay with it if he's having to go from guarding James Harden and, and initiating the possession defensively to finishing it on Kawhi Leonard or Paul George and live with those results. I think I think he's the type of player that is really a glue piece, and I think there'll be a lot of competition for him because he's a little bit more easily attainable, and you can see the effectiveness that he can have for your roster in doing so. But I think he would he would have a lot of positive uh, positive play that the Suns don't necessarily have 
to the extent that he could bring. And I think the big caveat with what you mentioned with Royce is that the Suns can get him without giving up Grayson Allen. And I think that's obviously extremely important because of the lineup continuity that's being established and how effectively he plays off of the big three, obviously. I think Royce can bring some things similar to that, but with a little bit more of a defensive uh, defensive perspective and then allowing for that to play into the offensive production that he can bring. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the big one for me is Royce is obviously not the same caliber of player that you would be getting with a Bruce Brown, but you also don't have to include Grayson and the three guys that I named that you would need to send out to match salaries. None of them are really in the rotation or project to be in the playoff rotation. Um, So you would be trading three guys kind of on the fringe of the roster for a guy that you would hope can come in and like you said, handle some of those wing matchups, play up a position if need be, um, and and can do so with you know experience, playoff experience, physicality, that sort of thing. Um, you know the three point shooting is has been kind of average, but he is shooting thirty nine and a half percent on corner threes, just under thirty eight percent on catch and shoot threes. I think the Suns would be happy with that kind of number when he's sharing the floor with two or three of the big three out there. Um, you know he he's he's a good player, and I think the defense is. It's like versatile, but also, like we said, he's a he's an attainable player. So he is an upgrade, and he's a guy that you don't have to give up the bank for for a six six wing who has spent time at the three, the two, and the four this season. So he he'd be able to handle a lot of those primary defensive matchups without requiring a ton of touches on offense. And if you get him touches in terms of three point shots, he's able to cash in on those. Uh, were there any other trade targets that you wanted to mention briefly before we get out of here. Yeah. Uh, and just one last thing on Royce. Um, he's the type of player that has gained a lot more value over the last maybe four or five seasons because of what he showed that he could do with the Utah Jazz and the Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert era under Quinn Snyder. And the ways that Quinn Snyder featured him offensively and defensively are the exact same demands that he would have with the context of the Phoenix Suns and the spacing and the defensive versatility they would need from his position. And that that ability to work like Grayson Allen does in screening, ghosting, slipping as a small screener and being able to play off of the short role in that as well and get into drives and all of that stuff, it's just invaluable. So having another piece like that would really help to push the needle. Um, but it's kind of going to the next topic and just speaking of general uh, other options I was looking at, one of the big ones that stood out to me, no um, no pun intended with this one, but it was uh, Andre Drummond. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to the grit and the physicality and the athleticism that the Suns would like to have. And I spoke to the defensive activity that they need uh, specifically from the front court in fourth quarters. Andre Drummond will bring a ton of that. And when you're able to kind of bottle what he brings and put it into – uh, a certain window or a certain uh, threshold of minutes to where he's not going to be out there for too long. He can just go out there and be himself without having to worry about not getting in foul trouble or doing anything of that of kind of to that level that's going to take him off the floor because he's only going to be out there for so long. And he has the type of activity that can really change games. And for the Bulls this season and the last couple of seasons since he's been with the Bulls, he's had those moments where he comes in for Vucevic they up the activity levels with him being at the level of the screen, or even if he is in drop coverage, his drop coverage looks a lot different and feels a lot different than Vucevic or if he was with the Suns, 
his drop coverage looks a lot different than what Nurkic his drop coverage would be. And just because of his hand activity, uh, his athleticism, the space that he takes up, his wingspan, and he has the anticipatory skills of like a wing at times. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's funny watching him get switched on the guards and seeing him pick their pocket. And then he's able to get out in transition and get dunks if he decides to finish those is a whole nother topic. <laughs> <laughs> but Andre Drummond has that game-changing type of um, type of activity that comes with this style of play. And he's also an all-time great in terms of rebounding percentage. And obviously the Suns could benefit from having that in addition to, but also behind Yusuf Nurkic. And I think mm -hmm. he could just be a positive player in addition to being able to set very solid screens, give a little bit of um, – a little bit of verticality in terms of spacing, but also being able to operate in a lot of the context that Nurkic does at times. Obviously, he's not the passer or processor that he is, but he's able to do a lot of the connecting handoff hub type things and keep keep actions afloat or generate new pace when things break down. And I think he could be a positive piece if the Suns were to look to attain him, and he's a more gettable contract as well, not unlike uh, Royce O'Neal is. Yeah, he's yeah. extremely gettable in terms of I think his contract's only 3.3 million. So the Suns could conceivably, if they were willing to give up a pair of second round picks, yeah. absorb into one of their trade exceptions without having to give up a player, or they could send a player if Chicago wanted one. Um mm -hmm. Chicago definitely being a team that, you know, approaching the trade deadline, they'll be open for business. They might not completely blow it up, but a guy like Drummond is not uh untouchable by any means but you're right he's kind of had a quiet little resurgence in chicago late in his career um this year he's averaging 7.8 points 8.3 rebounds and 1.1 steals and what's impressive to me is not those numbers but the fact that he's doing it in about 16 minutes per game is pretty impressive like that's a guy that is gobbling up rebounds and like you said getting his hands on some steals uh, in limited action and those are two things that could really help the suns in those minutes when Nurkic is off the floor, um, you know, we mentioned the fourth quarter rebounding Suns are dead last in that category. Having Andre Drummond out there for the start of a fourth quarter might change that dynamic just a little bit and help you close out defensive possessions. But uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode of take that for data. This has been a special episode of the PHNX Suns podcast. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks. Steven and I are going to be doing these every few weeks as the companion podcast to the old heads, which has Saul and flex on it. If you haven't heard that episode yet, make sure and go to check that out. Uh, but also make sure to give Steven a follow on Twitter at stay true S dot three. Give me a follow on Twitter at Gerald Borgay. And of course you can follow the show at phnx underscore sons until next time take that for data